Yeah, I'm in a I'm in a weird position um, because I'm in, I'm in the bedroom lying on the, on my side, and I've got like a really slight cold. So apologies if I sound a bit weird, but uh, I'm totally fine. Are you doing well, Rupert? I am doing well. Yes, um, I am in a much more professional environment, sat before a desk with a microphone in front of me, and I I don't have a cold. So. When people say sat before a desk, it's almost like reverential, like you worship your workspace, like to sit before something, like you're kneeling, <laughs> kneeling in front of a desk, a shrine. Of it is also, to... <laughs> happens to be my shrine to Gary Sinise, so. <laughs> the shrine to Gary. <laughs> I try that. He always looks tired, that man, doesn't he? He's always just, like, he just needs a quick five minutes. A bit like he's been through a wind tunnel as well, like his face is stretched back. Yeah, and, and like he's, um, and when he's acting, it's like, it's like they said, okay, we're just ready to take the scene. Oh, sorry, Gary, forgot to tell you, I had a text message, your entire family's dead. And action! And and he's like, well, it's like that kind of shock, that trying to deal with shock for 60 years. Um, also the title of my greatest hits out now in John Menzies. <laughs> uh, <John Menzies. laughs> Weird, hasn't been selling that well for some reason. <laughs> oh yeah, I did branch out to MVC as well, but yeah, no copies you... flying off the yeah. shelf. Maybe you should get on the phone to Woolworths. <laughs> Which still exists, I think, in Australia. Um, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, people who get nostalgic for supermarkets, by the way, wow, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, do you remember going in John Menzies and thinking... I, I want to buy something, but I've no idea what they sell in here. Rubbish. Yeah. Absolutely rubbish. Do you remember walking at John Menzies and thinking, oh, this is exactly like WH Smith's, but so like, less, less impressive, so it's probably just going <laughs> to shut down soon. And low. <laughs> <laughs> and Zane and low. Wow. So I have, these are my films for this week. I've even, as a special treat, actually remembered where I watched them. Um, so I've got Rush Hour, Close Range, Warlock 2, The Armageddon, Halloween, the 2018 movie, Enola Holmes, Shelter, The Right, and Ip Man 4. That's, this is where you, you say yours now. <laughs> yes, this is it. Um, I just remembered, I, this, uh, I watched an, Enola Holmes as well. It's not on my list, but we can discuss that. Um, oh, nice, okay. Uh, right then. Yeah, because I've got a few which I've watched quite a way back, but didn't have time last time. So I've got uh, The Dark Knight. I have 21 Jump Street, Willy Wonka, both versions, American Psycho, American History X, This Is England, The Karate Kid, The Karate Kid Part 2, uh, The Devil All the Time, Dark Skies, Bombshell, and I might mention Sister Act at the end if I've got time. Um, uh, sorry, The Devil All the Time. Who stars in that? Tom Holland and Robert Pattinson. And Bill Skarsgård. Yes, I've seen this as well. Sorry, yeah. it could, um, there was there's a few I missed. So that's perfect. I'll, I'll chime in yeah. with that as well. Uh, you've got more than me. So do you want to kick off first? Yeah, I could quickly just bang through The Dark Knight because it's obviously a film we're all pretty familiar with. I'm pretty um, sure that every time we have a podcast, you've watched a Batman film. <laughs> I do try. I do try. Um, <laughs> so I watched this with my mum because she'd never seen it. And I do find that watching films with new people always brings out new stuff for yourself. Uh, and this time around, what came out of it was that we, we kind of noted that the drama in the film has quite a lot of weight, especially in the first 90 minutes. It feels like 
a heavy crime drama, kind of like, um, you know, like the long Halloween, the, the graphic novel, it feels a bit on those terms, like where it's quite a heavy, um, complex crime saga, really. Um, mm. So that's good. And we also noticed just how damaged the Joker is. Um, like he's so bitter and hateful. And it's like he's trying to mold the world to match his mental state. And um, which I suppose it, it makes sense of that ending part where he's got the people on the boats and he's trying to get them to kill each other. And it's like, so it's like he's trying to bend the world to, to kind of, um, to be congruent with how, what is going on in his own mind. So I kind of get it now. That's the reason that he says near the start that he's not crazy. So while I do think he is an interesting baddie, I just don't think he is the definitive Joker by any means. He's not, he's not cruelly funny. He's just cruel. And that's where my problem with him comes in. Um, and I do find that Christopher Nolan's films have a tendency to unravel around the final act. And this is no different, really. I mean, the stuff, the stuff that happens after the creation of Two-Face is just a bit messy. And all of that stuff with the guy uncovering the corporate wrongdoing in, um, in the Wayne Foundation just feels really superfluous and totally knocks the wind out of the film uh, near the end. Um, I would say that... I suppose yeah. that's one of it, especially with Nolan's later films. There's always that. There always seems to be. Um, he has like an urge to overcomplicate everything. Mm-hmm. Like it can never. It can never be following a through line. It has to be yeah. cutting back to something else less interesting. Yeah, that, it really does. It really does take the wind out of the sails. And I remember Dave saying, our friend Dave saying, um, that he t- tried to re-edit <laughs> the Dark Knight and remove <laughs> the bit with the guy the guy uncovering the corporate stuff. Um, but yeah. he found what he found. I think he t- tried to do some stuff with uh, Dark Knight Rises well, we as well. We should point out that, that our friend Sexy Dave is actually an editor. Yeah, yeah. He's not, like... it's not just <laughs> yeah, someone getting on his yeah, iPad. Yeah, so, um, and, I th- and he, I think he tried to do some stuff with Dark Knight Rises as well. But what he, what he found was a problem with doing this is that what will happen in... Um, these sort of they feel extraneous to us these scenes but the problem is is that they are extraneous but then there'll be some vital bit of information or plot development which would just be stuck in at the end of the scene so someone will mention something which actually does push the film forward but only after you've gone through like 10 minutes of superfluous stuff so it's impossible to remove those bits uh so yeah, I'm wondering as well if, like you say, it's the, the extension because obviously Nolan tends to make longer sort of films. That the superfluous sort of artificial extensions of the time, maybe if they were all taken out, the film would just feel too brisk, like too much is happening at once. So it would, then it, the pacing would go the other way. Possibly, it wouldn't have the same weight. So I just think in this case, it it's quite a nice like the first ninety minutes are quite a nice like slow burn with that kind of weight I was talking about. And I think if if this if it had been cut down a bit towards it, in the final act, especially, then it could have accelerated quite nicely. Um, but it doesn't. It just the pacing just feels quite off um, towards the end. Uh, I think that the truck bike chase is probably the best action scene Nolan's ever done. 
and I really, really like that scene. It's very cool and very, very clear. However, I'd say that the other action scenes still have a really choppy messiness uh, that we saw in Batman Begins, because Batman Begins, the action scenes in that are unwatchable, the way they're edited. I wouldn't say this is quite as bad, but it's still still not quite there. Um, so, yeah, still a good film. There's a lot of weight, but I don't know. It's just, it's not quite the definitive Batman movie for me. Yeah, this is, um, I think, I mean, I know we've covered this before, but go on the subject of the definitive Batman movies. For me, I think it's just the original Michael Keaton film because because it's so, because it's brisk. It's got really good performances in it. The Joker is insane and funny. Very, very funny. Yes. And, and um, yeah, and I, and I just think that it was, and it's very comic booky. So yeah. in the same way that I like it in the same way that I like the original Mortal Kombat because it sticks it sticks to the characters and the lore and does it in a and, and embraces in in Batman's case the the gothicness and in Mortal Kombat's case the the actual one on one fighting mechanic that they bring through it it feels kind of true yeah. to the source material but embraces the fact that it's in a different medium so yeah I I I like when you watch when you watch the original Batman Michael Keaton is economic with his movement and yep. it's it's a really richly filmed and the joker's really really funny and totally bonkers it's the same fit vibe you get from like mark hamill in the animated series that yeah. he's got these like ridiculous obviously more cartoonish sort of um, schemes like the one yeah. where he's just poisoning the fish um <laughs> but but he's constantly like laugh out loud funny um yes. and then you you watch the dark knight and it's just miserable I, um, I, it's yeah, I, I, it's too grounded for my tastes. And it, I dug out um, my copy of Batman Year One because there's something in it where uh, David Mazzuchelli, the one of the artists, he he makes a point about this. Uh, he's talking about Year One, but I think it does apply also to uh, Nolan's Batman films. He says. With year one, we sought to craft a credible Batman grounded in a world that we recognize. But did we go too far? Once a depiction veers toward realism, each new detail releases a torrent of questions that exposes the absurdity at the heart of the genre. The more realistic superheroes become, the less believable they are. So that's a really good point. Yeah, it is. It, I thought that was quite an interesting point it was making there. It's quite self-critical as well, really. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah. Okay. So, uh, should we move on? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I'll do these as, as a double bill. I watch Rush Hour and Rush Hour Three, um, and the reason I, I chose this is because um, I saw our mutual friend co-op Chris um, last week, and he had How never. Does it sound we, like that's his. Uh, that's his like nickname, co-op Chris. <laughs> it's, it's just what we call him on Games Freezer. He's always co-op Chris whenever I have to review a game that he's involved with. So he. <laughs> He, um, yeah, he came over and we, we were obviously uh, playing guitar and having a few drinks. And he, I, we were choosing a film. Usually we check on something like Robocop or Total Recall or something. But I said, I saw Rush Hour and he mentioned he'd never seen it. And I've got weirdly fond memories of Rush Hour because it comes back to, it was it like released in, I think, 98 or 99 when I was working in a video store. And I, I remember watching it there and watching it like a few times in a relatively short period. And because it was one of those films that you could just, 
it's like kind of fast talking, you know, uh, Chris Tucker. I haven't seen it since the early 2000s. I think I've seen the sequels, but I, they've obviously just have made no impression on my mind, which ties in with what I'll say about Rush Hour 3. So for, for people who haven't seen this, Rush Hour is like a buddy comedy uh, of basically two stereotypes. You've got Chris Tucker as uh, a young um, sort of LA, LAPD detective uh, who's really fast talking and you've got Jackie Chan who's a sort of wise um wise softly spoken martial artist from China who comes over because there's a China I think oh, I can't remember the story now it's something to do with the um, an assassination attempt on the Chinese consulate so w- the film is good it is, it is it's still funny and although it's dated it's not it's not dated it's basically an update of 48 hours effectively because okay. it's it's the same thing and and it suffers from a slightly similar problem where whilst chris tucker is yeah, yes effectively whereas chris tucker is really funny in it and he's really uh, he's got really good comedic timing and he's got a very, very good sort of sense of physical comedy and he's willing to poke fun at himself and jackie chan is obviously like one of the best action stars in cinema, you know, when it comes to sort of physical performances and martial arts itself. And again, he's got that comedic streak as well. Where the unevenness comes in is, I remember you saying in one of the previous podcasts about 48 Hours, which is a film I still enjoy, um, the the humour is kind of one directional. So you've got Nick Nolte constantly making racial slurs and racial jokes at Eddie Murphy. And then when it comes back the other way, it's kind of uneven. it's, It's not weighted the right way. And the same thing happens in Rush Hour. So whenever Chris Tucker makes a joke, it is kind of aimed at the entire Asian community and <laughs> that entire nation of people. And and then when it, when the humour comes back the other way, it's basically Jackie Chan pointing out that Chris Tucker himself is a bit of a buffoon. Um, yeah. There's a, a joke so it's not just like N word. Oh really? Okay. It's not. It's it's not like oh I'll have, I'll have a massive go at the Chinese and then you can have a massive go at the blacks. It's it's not like that. Not that it needs to be, but it's noticeable when the way that he's constantly making jokes about like height and the fact that he can't speak English properly and stuff. And then when mm-hmm. it comes back the other way, it's basically Jackie Chan saying, "No, oh, you're a bit thick on you." Really. Right. Um. So there's a scene where they mention Jackie Chan mentions the N word in a bar and that kicks off and just played for laughs played and it ends in like a fight, a really good fight, but a fight nonetheless. Um, and again, that just wouldn't really happen. That kind of humor wouldn't happen in like a 12 rated film now. I don't think. Um, no. So, but it is really entertaining. The action sequences are really good. The comedy in it is really funny, but I can imagine if someone, if someone born, you know, in like a, a millennial, I hate the term, but someone born in the last 20 years watching now, they probably think, Ooh, you know that's a bit uh, a bit saucy for a for like a family <laughs> a family comedy. Uh, so yeah, um, and then, so it's still good, and it is a film that I will watch again because it's I do like buddy comedies, and there aren't that many really solid ones. Um, then I watched Rush Hour three because the second one I paid for, I had to pay three pound fifty for the first one, which Chris owes me for. I'll have to get back to him on that. Um, and then the third one, the second one you had to pay for, but the third one was free, so I just jumped straight into the third one after it. And it is just a massive retread of the first one, but just not as not as well done. Um, what's interesting about it is what I forgot to mention in the first Rush Hour is that it's directed by Brett Ratner, yeah. and. What happens is the reason that the, the, the martial arts and action sequences are so good is apparently when it came to the direction of those sequences, he left it to basically the Jackie Chan's Hong Kong team. So right. 
it's not massively noticeable that you know it's suddenly being a different director but I think it gives them like a kinetic it's, energy. It's not like suddenly in black and white. <laughs> yeah, ratio. Right, yeah. <laughs> real. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, it's really good. The third one is just, it's effectively the same plot as the first one, just with um, like uh, uh, a hot, hot young, that sort of the child in the first one is now like a, a young woman in this for mm. Chris Tucker to lust over. If you like the first one, you'll probably like the second and third ones, but just not as much, much like every film trilogy. Yes. So, so um, but yeah. Kind of like Michelle, the Lethal Weapon films, really. Yes, uh, I'll although, be mentioning some Lethal Weapon later on, actually. Although I still stand by, like, Lethal Weapon is still one of the most consistent series for me. Love them. All of yeah, them. Yeah, even, even up to the, yeah, the fourth one, yeah. Yeah. I feel and I like the ending, so it's it's nice. It all works out rather well. Yeah. So what are they? They, get, they get they get softer as they go through. Don't oh they? yeah, but that's that's fine. That's yeah because they're it good. Does have a bit of the old Fast and Furious element to it, doesn't it? Where well, it's crap. like mates at the end. <laughs> Apparently, the next Fast and Furious is going into space. What? I know. Anyway, um, so where are they? So you had to pay for the first one, but the third one is available on what Prime? Yeah, yeah. So if you want to watch it, you'll have to pay three pound fifty for it. But it'll, it'll be a wisely spent three pound fifty. And it is, yeah. it, it is a film that I think a lot of people should watch because it is, it's just, it's just a good action comedy. And yeah. Chris Tucker is funny in it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a good, it's a good route into the world of Jackie Chan as well, really, isn't it? Yeah, because I think before that, his only Western film was like Rumble in the Bronx, which, again, I haven't seen for a very long time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I, I am in a bit of a... Recently, I've been watching a lot of martial arts films, and I, I am diving deep, so that'll be good for the next few weeks. Well, speaking of humour, which is already dated, I watched 21 Jump Street. Um, oh, right. Okay. Uh, which was only made in, like, 2012, 2013. Um, but I, I forgot how aggressively crass and juvenile it is. Like, it's not, it's not to say it's unfunny, but it is quite variable in quality. So this is about two school enemies who happen to join the cops as adults. Um, Jonah Hill was this friendless geek and Channing Tatum was this hunky jock. So they're useless as cops. So they're sent on an undercover assignment where they have to go back to... Uh, high school or college i don't know you know whatever they have in america anyway where they they the task is to find the supplier of this new drug on the campus um so most of the humor and the drama comes about because the geeky one is now considered cool in a modern school whereas the jock is out of place sort of thing um there's now uh, when I talk about dated humor or humor which wouldn't land very well now, there's a scene near the start where uh, Channing Tatum and, and Jonah Hill like chase down this uh, black guy, bundle him to the floor, um, and then dance and thrust over him, shooting into the sky. And I'm thinking, ah, I don't know, post George Floyd, I'm not sure that would, <laughs> they would do that scene these days, but anyway, um, yeah, as is often the case in modern comedies most of the funniest parts happen in passing rather than in the big set pieces like yeah. um jonah hill's really overprotective mum is funny i like how like dave franco's character although i don't particularly like dave franco he he is 
he plays a dick very well and he's got he's this cringingly like eco-conscious guy uh obviously losing a massive house in there and so that element's quite funny um and there's little things like the etiquette of school bags shoulder straps and things like that which are quite amusing quite well observed um but you know some of the big set pieces are just a bit dull like there's this big fight at a school play which is not funny it just goes on everything involving rob riggle is just totally unfunny um and to be honest most of the stuff with ice cube isn't funny either so i, I remember the second one being much funnier 10 out of 10 then yeah yeah um <laughs> i think the reason it it is watchable is because of jonah hill and channing tatum because they are good comic performance and they do have good chemistry so plus it's directed by um phil lord and chris miller who did the lego movie so the comic timing is good i think they went on to actually write the second one as well that's why i think the second one might be better um just a bit silly a bit sillier a bit more naked gun you know i'm gonna have to watch that then yeah because i think i've seen the first one and then never watched the second one yeah i've had my fill of that (laughs) i'm pretty sure that the second one is better there's a really funny like um really slow car chase where they're in like golf carts or something which is quite funny um yeah so it's but yeah the first one very boisey very juvenile but you know as far as mindless comedies go it's it's okay oh. well i watched uh, this is going to be a brief one i watched um obviously i'm still in the throes of a scott adkins revival and i watched after watching the awful awful incoming uh I watched the Debt Collectors, which I mentioned last time in part one of this podcast, which was which was fine, although it had someone in it who looked and sounded like Mickey Rourke a bit too much. And this time I have watched a film called Close Range, which is a few years old. I think it's 2015. Um, and it stars Scott Adkins as a sort of uh, American you know, special forces operative who has rescued his niece from a asian crime syndicate and mm-hmm. as he's about to escape with her and his sister her mother they find out that they he's actually taken this thumb drive which is basically a MacGuffin that they need to get back off them and mm-hmm. the whole film is essentially a siege in a farmhouse and right. i knew that the whole film was going to be a siege at a farmhouse when they turn up at the farmhouse and they say right let's just get pack in the bags and get going and i thought you're not going to check the bags in the car and get going because i can see that that is a purpose-built town that is going to get completely destroyed (laughs) so they end up obviously just for various reasons staying there and it's you know uh, scott adkins his niece and sister against uh the sort of corrupt sheriff and this crime syndicate that's come to 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 get this thumb drive back and it's it's pretty good it's a pretty good low budget action film because there's you get a bit of everything there's there's gunplay some car chases and some nice obviously hand-to-hand combat not as much as i would like from scott adkins but uh it it is it's a very tight sort of 80 minute film and it does i've noticed this about low budget action films when they have got in the editing room and they say they say right that's the film edited and it's 65 minutes so they have to like thicken it up and there's a whole sequence in this it's brilliant where at the start it just shows this convoy of vehicles with this uh, asian crime syndicate driving to this farmstead and it just does this thing where it like shows them sitting in the car freeze frames on their face and then just comes up with a name and then scrolls over to the next person does the same thing it oh, does Jesus. this 
for three full cars of people. And of course, it doesn't matter what the names are because they just turn up and get shot anyway. So it's clearly <laughs> there to thicken up the runtime. Brilliant. It's um, amazing. It's like the director when he, he finished the film, like edits done, 65 minutes. He called up the second unit director and said, bloody hell, have you got, an, have you got any spare footage here? <laughs> we really we really need to flesh this baby out. <laughs> Otherwise, it, yeah. it is not going to qualify for the Academy Awards. <laughs> yeah, it's there, there's um there, there's two bits in it that really tickled me and that I laughed at and not with. Uh, one is there's a moment when they get into a car chase and they drive away from this farmstead. They drive for about eight minutes away, so you know you're covering miles and miles, and mm. they end up in a quarry. And then this whole huge gunfight takes off with explosions and stuff. And eventually, they're all, uh, when this is all done, Scott Adkins picks up a gun and fires a single bullet into someone's head and kills them. And then it cuts back to the farmhouse. And then this someone someone says, did you hear that? And and then it, they obviously realize that like he's still alive. And I thought, he is miles away in a quarry. <laughs> And you've had all these sounds of like constant <laughs> gunfire, but when he fires one gun, not only do you know that that's Scott Adkins firing that bullet, but you can hear it for a start. Brilliant. <laughs> um, then, uh, so that made me laugh. And also, I don't think I've ever seen a film where so many bullets get fired and so few pe- people get hit. Um, th- there's a bit at the end when it all kicks off into the final act, and there's about eight or nine blokes taking cover behind cars, just cough firing machine guns at this house just tearing it apart and there's a woman in the window with like an old sort of bolt action single shot rifle just pounding bullets into the crowd scott adkins is running around with a machine gun no one is getting hit no one (laughs) he's just firing and firing and firing for minutes and i to the point that i thought this is almost funny now because it's cutting to someone shooting a gun and then someone else and they're just like pointing up at these windows and shooting no one no one is in any danger (laughs) so uh, that really tickled me but it is a good film it's and it's not i know i'm taking the piss a bit but it is actually fun as well so um yeah that's close range it's a close range and what's that on that was on amazon prime okay 21 jump street is on netflix by the way is the second uh, one on there i'm not sure to be honest because <laughs> that's the one that I, would I know that faye is a massive fan of the original tv show with johnny depp so i don't know if she's seen those yet mm. um so um we'll go on to willy wonka then both versions okay. there are two adaptations willy wonka and the chocolate factory is the 1971 film and charlie and the chocolate factory is the tim burton version from 2005 now, i don't have any i don't have especially fond memories of the 1971 version although i remember liking its darkness and the weird tunnel nightmare sequence and the very kind of genial oddness of gene wilder as well gene wilder was just an amazing man wasn't he so he was so nice good um the it, sequence by the way, in Blazing Saddles, where he mm. has the coin in his hand and the other guy, and he takes it before the other guy can close his hand, is still one of the funniest things I've ever seen. <laughs> He's amazing. The thing is, he he elevated so many otherwise average comedies. I've never seen the Mel Brooks stuff, is brilliant, but yeah, you know, like Stir Crazy and Hino Casino Evil, whatever it's called. Um, you know, they weren't the best, but my God. Always funny just to watch his face. Anyway, yeah. so um, I, yeah, the, this the seventy one version it holds up remarkably well, and and because you, 
you know, it's a kind of considered a classic. And it, but it isn't some slick American 80s classic. It's this low budget musical shot in Germany depicting this American family inexplicably living in what looks like a northern English town. Northern English working class town. No idea what's going on there. Um, the songs are all very catchy. It's kind of it's one of those ones where you watch it and you're like, oh yeah, I didn't forgot that was from this film. And Gene Wilder is obviously an absolute star, total crackpot, but always likable and warm. And I like how the whole kind of garish fairground that he's created could actually be real. Like you can see the kind of factory windows behind the lavish sets. And it's quite nice that it's kind of quite grounded in that way that it it feels like it could be real. Tim Burton's version, on the other hand, from 2005, is just an obnoxious CGI fest, by comparison. And Johnny Depp plays Wonka, obviously. And he seems to be channeling sort of latter-day Michael Jackson showing a bunch of kids around Never Neverland or something. It's really weird. He's really creepy. Uh, in a kind of well, this the, that was in the heart way. of that Johnny Depp phase where he everything he did he had to be under like thick makeup with contact yeah. lenses and 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 you just it was it got boring after a while it's just oh it's another zany character is it yes um, so yeah I've never seen this like I said I, the original I remember watching a few times it always seemed to be on TV on Sundays at my grandparents oh, and I think I've watched like fifteen twenty minute chunks of it over the years. But yeah. I've never seen that. 2005, I thought it was more recent than that. But this, sorry, carry on, I interrupted that. Yeah, um, yeah, there wasn't really much else to say about it. He's creepy, and the song and dance numbers are just obnoxious and annoying, like really abrasive. It's it's quite an odd film. And yet, despite all the CGI, weirdly, there's a sequence where he's got this whole army of squirrels to crack nuts for him. And apparently, the squirrels were trained they were real squirrels trained to sit there and crack nuts which i found quite oddly endearing the fact that they bothered to do that when the rest of it just looks so well i mean it's 2005 cgi you know it wasn't exactly the peak (laughs) it was the peak of cgi but not the peak of quality cgi (laughs) um (laughs) yeah it's just weird and not in a good way i wouldn't say so i think Although Roald Dahl hated the 1971 version, um, it still is the definitive film version. don't think Roald Dahl liked any of the film versions of his books, to be fair. So it's not on its own there. Yeah. So uh, if you're going to watch one of them, if you have a particular hankering for that, don't bother with Tim Burton's version. Um go back because uh, yeah 71 version is old yes but it holds up um on this uh, a nice little sort of segue from that is if you've got a hankering for the version watch the 1971 version not the 2005 version but if you've got a hankering for julian sands tip then watch warlock 2 the armageddon because within the first scene it is tip-tastic um i do like seeing tips in films uh because you know, it just you know, we see enough female nudity. Let's 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 get the boys out. And, um, they, and they're few and far between, especially with like big name actors. I mean, I suppose you've got Brucey Boy gets yep. his tip out, doesn't he? In uh, what's it called? Color of Night. Color of Night. Yeah. Um, and and in um, Pulp Fiction. Does he get his tip out in Pulp Fiction? Oh, 
Oh, oh just about, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can just if you, if you freeze frame you, it. The right just, you just flicks it into frame. Don't you worry about that. Um, and then I suppose, of course, there's Harvey Keitel in the piano. Um, but yeah, oh yeah, he doesn't he doesn't mess about, does he? No. Yeah, but it's quite rare, isn't it? Yeah, so it's nice of Julian Sands to get out on this, even though it, it is, is admittedly covered in like a, a black tar from hell. You still see it. Yeah. Um, so the 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 Warlock films, I've only I think I've seen the first one a very long time ago, and I don't know why this is Warlock. This is it's it's Warlock two, but it's called Warlock the Armageddon. But it is Warlock two on Amazon Prime. Oh, this is prime territory, baby. Um, so I just fancied I was really tired when I watched the film and I thought I'll just chuck something on and I, I've always liked Julian Sands but I don't know why so I just thought well I'll, I'll watch this and again it starts off with a very lengthy introductory sequence that it's quite cool actually how it shows this the story is that these druids that go back thousands of years um, I think it's every every generation or every hundred years or every thousand years or whatever they've got these six stones that when the moon arises in a certain way, they then have to get, gather these six stones and it stops Satan from taking over the earth. But the warlock, who is Satan's son, played by Julian Sands, his haircut in the past, when it cuts to a thousand years previously, by the way, oh my God, he looks like He-Man in the cartoon. It is like a really perfectly symmetrical, like severe blonde bob. It's fantastic. Uh, he just looks like the village idiot. Um, so they... <laughs> The stones get separated and then it cuts forward a thousand years, obviously to 1993 New York. And uh, Julian Sands comes back and is trying to gather the stones to let his father, Satan, come to take over the world for the titular Armageddon. Now, this is good because it's got a really weird mix of really visceral physical effects, really gory physical effects, and like really sentimental teen love and like this kind of wicked sense of comedy through it was like really sort of um, mean-spirited comedy like on on julian sands behalf against everyone he meets where he just kills them and mutilates them and stuff. so the first sequence was i thought it would just be some silly trashy like comedy horror but it's it's actually quite full-on because he this woman is just like getting ready for like a meal and she just suddenly her guts expand in a dress bursts and she just yeah. gives birth to this like tumorous blob and then out of this blob julian sands comes out naked tip out and then he just basically tortures and kills her and like tears off the flesh from his stomach to use as a map to these stones and uh and i thought oh okay then is it just really really ramped up a notch here um uh, the the kid from I forgot his name, but the kid from Gremlins makes a cameo as well for a second, which is fine. Um, the, and then it cuts to the druids who are who've got this this boy that they're raising to try and fight the warlock, but he doesn't really know his true his true sort of um, role in all of this. And when I found out, when you think of druids, Rupert, just just describe what you think in your head when you think of a group of druids. What shared characteristics do they have? How do they look in your mind? Yeah, they'd have robes. Uh, they'd have beards. They'd be old men, but they'd be in a mm. some sort of circle. They'd be quite cultish, quite ritualized. Yeah. So they're not then the captain from Lethal Weapon, Bruce Glover, <laughs> and R.G. Armstrong. <laughs> Not so much, no. That wasn't what I was picturing. 
<laughs> but that's who that's who they are, and it's amazing. Bruce Glover is is a druid who's like tuned his back and is 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 sort of druidic thing into a more Christian uh, bent. And yeah, and it, there's a sequence in it where, as part of this prophecy to stop Julian Sands, one of the druids has to kill their own child and then bring him back from the dead, so he can, he's experienced death and then he can sort of have the power to take him on. And the way that um, the I'll just call him the captain from Lethal Weapon who plays the dad who does this right. It's not like a gentle poisoning or something in his sleep. He goes up to his son when he's just hanging on with his girlfriend in a field and just shoots him in the guts with a shotgun. <laughs> and the, he's like, what, "What's happening, dad?" And then he brings him back to life and says, "Oh, you can fight the warlock now." And it's like all this information the son has never been privy to, and it's just, he's just saying, "What is happening?" He says that for quite a large portion of the film, actually. So he does die um, when he gets shot in the guts with a shotgun, yeah. And then they, then they, he just shoots him. He shoots his son in the guts with a shotgun in a field, brings him back from the dead. And Take expects- notes: last days of American crime. That's what happens when you shoot someone in the guts with a shotgun. <laughs> They need yeah. to be resurrected <laughs> from feet of by, by by the captain from Lethal Weapon and Bruce Glover. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's it's weird. And then the film, like all the stuff with Julian Sands, is really interesting and like really kind of schlocky fun because mm. he's just so nasty to everyone he meets in like a really sort of sneer snide way. But then it's kind of like the Wishmaster thing, you know, where he says to they have to give him the jewels of their own free will. So he says, "Oh, you know, I'll do this for you if you give me this." And then of course he just kills him in various ways. Um, but then it'll cut to the son who's been, uh, he's got like four days to, to take on the warlock. And it's just him learning to like float baseballs in a field while Bruce Glover looks on with a smile on his face. And and it's all very soft and gentle. And you think, this is very tonally separate <laughs> from each other. It's fun. Whenever, whenever Julian Sands is on the film. And of course, I did think after it, actually, I might watch Warlock 3 actually, but then I realized that Julian Sands is replaced by Bruce Payne. And I don't know. I, w- I want some Julie. So yeah. I, I take it that uh, this is obviously on Prime because I've seen it on my way past, but I have never seen Warlock on there, the original. And I do want to watch it because I was convinced that I'd seen it already, but that was Wishmaster I was thinking of. So I do want to, I, I need to get into some Warlock action. Three wishes. His voice in that film is amazing. Um, there's about 40,000 Wishmaster films as well, if you want to tuck in. Right. Andrew Divoff leaves after the second one, I think. Okay. Um, much like American Ninja. Uh, so, yeah, a Warlock to the Armageddon, a surprisingly decent film that I would watch again with other people. It just it's, so, it's such a baffling cast, just <laughs> uh, such a mixture of like really like harsh horror and then just really sentimental sort of teenagers falling in love in in the Midwest. Brilliant. I can imagine. Yeah, I can picture Julian Sands playing quite a good evil bastard, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine that. Oh, that's the thing cool. is my. My entire history with Julian Sands was the Warlock films and then mm. Knives Out. <laughs> I only really know Julian Sands from um, like old costume dramas, really, like Merchant Ivory and that. Um, and uh, what else? He was in the Killing Fields as well. And so serious roles, you know. So it'd be I'd quite like to see him doing something a bit more schlocky, you know. So I, I, no. I, it sounds like my bag. Definitely get on board with it. Yeah, practical effects, good. Okay, so keeping on the theme of murder, that was on Prime, wasn't it, by the way? Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) Goodness me, yes. Um, American Psycho is on Prime and Netflix, I think. Okay. Which is good. So he's spreading the love. So Christian Bale, 
perfectly plays Patrick Bateman, who is an infinitely wealthy New York investment banker who spends his spare time listening intently to Huey Lewis and the news and Genesis and murdering people with axes, basically. Um, I find I find American Psycho oddly hilarious. I always have. It's another example of where you don't need to simply, it shows that you don't need to sympathize with the protagonist. You only need to empathize. Um, and it's the, it's the sheer emptiness and meaninglessness of Patrick Bateman's existence that pushes him into homicide. There's, it's like, there's nothing materially left for him to obtain. And it's just competition now. And the competition in his life is over like own business cards um he is being like half-arsedly investigated by a detective played by willem dafoe obviously with great humor um but basically it's up to patrick bateman if he gets caught because he's kind of immune to the whole system um and his actual moment of confession is probably the best piece of acting that bale has ever done it's so funny when he's just like weeping on the phone, confessing all his crimes. And then more amusingly is the fact that he then goes, he then confronts the person the next day, confronts the person, his lawyer, that he confessed to. And even then the lawyer is like, oh, that was a great joke. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, oh, you, you pull the best pranks. And he's, he's just been weeping on the phone for 10 minutes solid. <laughs> confessing that he's like stab people that like hookers to death and stuff it's hilarious um so yeah it's it's a really savage satire of rampant wall street greed and complacency in the 1980s um yes it is set in the 1980s explaining the hugh lewis and genesis thing um it was made in 2000 uh i suspect if it had been made 20 years later then they would have fetishized the 80s even more you know, they would have had more stuff laughing at big stupid phones and stuff. Um, yeah. But because it was made relatively close to the 80s, they don't do that so much. It, I think it captures the essence of the kind of Reagan era aspirations horribly well, the pure kind of excess and this almost orgasmic attachment to money and status. And I think it's a really, really smart film. So hugely recommended. I don't even yeah, know what kind of genre of film it is. Like, I, I guess it's, it's sort of a horror, really. But a very yeah. the most white collar horror you've ever seen. I, I just remember watching that, and just the, like you say, the, because I, I remember you were saying you watched The Wolf of Wall Street, and it, and it does yeah. fetishize money a bit too much. Um, that it is kind of it, you know it is good, but it's okay. A bit of a laugh at it. But then with American Psycho, I just remember watching it. I must have been what like. 16 17 at the time and just thinking like their th- th- their lives are awful yeah like they, they, everyone in the film is awful i'm like i was not jealous of no anything they, they were doing things and just squandering and having such awful like vapid conversations your lives are awful and, yeah. I, and i think that is because you're on that side of it you can enjoy the film more than just thinking i'm not jealous of this by the way yes. you know I was I wasn't I didn't have any kind of moral moral issues with it. No. Um but you know I haven't watched it for a long time so I should watch that again. Oh definitely definitely worth watch really holds up and um yes I know what you mean it's like there's nothing 
seductive at all about the lifestyle and it has no interest in making it look seductive at all like when when he's going through his morning skincare regime it's just you just think this is just ridiculous and um and so so empty like like spending all this time preparing yourself to look this way and for absolutely no kind of social return whatsoever he gets nothing out of it no no kind of meaningful human interaction at all and it's just it's it's pretty it's really vicious film um but very funny at the same time it reminded me a little bit of when i was watching um i mean obviously it's very very different when i was watching um interview with a vampire and Again, when when Tom Cruise is trying to say how amazing it has been a vampire, and then really you've just got all this opulence, but you're just kind of bored, yeah. and and it just reminds me of the same sort of thing. Like I'm not I'm not jealous of this. No. Um, so I watched. Um, I'm just going down in no particular order, by the way. I watched. Have you, have you finished? Sorry, with um, American Psycho. I didn't. Yep. Oh, um, I watched Halloween, the 2018 movie, uh, last Lovely. night, actually. And it, the first time I watched it, I've got a really rich history with the Halloween films because I've seen mm. all of them apart from Season of the Witch, which I understand is actually really good. But yeah. I just never watched it because it didn't have all Mikey Boy in it. Um, it's a, The Halloween films are films I've watched many times, especially I think it's the fifth one, The Curse of Michael Myers with Paul Rudd, obviously. Um, and <laughs> our mutual friend, Alex Davis, we've watched... As, as kids, we watched them like other people would watch like um, the Friday the 13th or the Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Halloween was very much our bag. And we watched it at one point, like monthly, just watching the various sort of installments because he had this like DVD box set of it. I was actually on a cabin holiday with him um, in Shropshire uh, when uh, this Halloween came out. Uh, and, we, yeah. and we went to the cinema to watch it. And there was so much weight of expectations. I don't normally yeah. have it when I go into films, but I do love the franchise. And when I went in, I thought, uh, and I absolutely loved it. And I haven't watched it since because it, it held a really good place in my mind. Mm. And then yesterday, I thought, I'll put it on again. Just I can watch it now without that yeah. weight of expectation. Without the baggage. Yeah. yeah. The excess baggage starring Alicia Silverstone. Um, Jesus. And Jonathan Shesh. And I watched, yeah, so I watched it last night. And, and I really do like it. And I know I'll watch it again because yep. it, it does this amazing thing of showing the weight of evil and the weight of the history without spending the whole film explaining, you know, because they just dismiss a lot of the mythology and a lot of the films, everything after the first one. I like how it just gets to the chase of just being a really solid horror film. Yes. Um, I love its sufficiency. Yeah. And and there's also, if you are a fan of the franchise, you, the, the visual, there's lots of little kind of visual tips around the scenes that like oh that's a reference to the eighth film oh that's about oh, right, you know yeah. but but they're sort of done so subtly that it doesn't impinge on just watching the film yeah. um if they're almost like easter eggs for fans but done without winking at the audience so it, it was yeah it was i really like it and i'm really looking forward to the, to the next two and i i was watching it with fate and i just said at one point i love jamie lee curtis <laughs> i just it's she's always so she's one of those people when you see her in a film you just think good like yeah. when she was in Knives Out or Trading Places, she's just good, and she's I, a no, fellow. No, we, we we watched Knives Out the other night, and she's so funny in that. Like she's yeah. so, oh my god, the way she looks down her nose at people is just brilliant. And um, but yeah, Halloween. I don't have the same attachment to the Halloween franchise, but I loved this. I love the 2018 version 
I think it's my favourite Halloween, but then again, I'm yeah. not really that into the series. Never liked the original that much, to be honest. But I appreciate its value in the history of horror cinema. But yeah, this one is just it's so brutal. And it really, really nails the balance between silliness and horror perfectly. Like tonally, it's just right. Yeah. There's um I swear to God, the bloke at the start looks like Kenneth Branner as well. Um oh my I, God, I, I, is, yeah. there's um I really liked as well like this sequence at the start when he pulls the mask out. And it's just that because obviously the the series got bogged down in the supernatural and all this stupid yes. mythology. Um I really like the the way that they when he pulls the mask out that Michael Myers doesn't react, but everyone around him does. Like they can sense the evil there. Yeah. And and it's just a it's just kind of a chilling way of doing it without loads of exposition. Yeah. Um, it's just very cinematic. Yeah. Um, very well yeah, judged film, yeah. And and I yeah, I think I would go with you as well with saying it's the best Halloween because what it it, it kind of it felt like the difference between, say, Terminator and Terminator 2, where you've got... It's like the first one was this kind of little, low-budget film. And then this, the, I, if you look at this as a sequel, like a direct sequel to it, yeah. it's it's got all... It, it just takes the ball and kind of runs with it. It changes the genre a little bit. It's not a slasher anymore. It makes it a, a, a bigger sort of... A bigger scale, but doesn't mess it up. It completely gets yeah. everything right. And, of course, Will Patton's in it. Good, good. And... um yeah, I like what they did with Jamie Lee Curtis's character. Like, it's quite believable that she would be, she would react to her trauma in this way. Um, and she she sells it as well. You believe that she could be this quite mad, almost conspiracy struck, um, yeah. like, like neo-military woman. And yeah, and you believe that she would have the balls to take him on sort of thing so yeah really good i want to yeah. watch it again i can't wait for the sequels they're making two no, aren't I'm they? it for it. Yeah. halloween kills can... and halloween ends ends i'm yeah. really looking forward to i reckon that one day i will sit there and watch them all back to back i think that's yeah that's going to be good, a good I may day join you for that um i also would like to say as well that um th- this i don't know if you remember the scene where there's a baby crying and he kind of looks into the crib and then moves on yes um, I because I remember in the cinema thinking, "Don't, Mike, come on, we've all <laughs> we've all had a drink." Um, <laughs> but but when um, apparently I, I was reading about the trivia yesterday, and apparently mm. they, that was supposed to be the woman he's just killed, her sleeping husband on the couch. But the actor didn't turn up, so they just had to like make something else up on the day. Right. He was just supposed to stab the husband and move on, but then they replaced it with a baby. Um, yeah. So Halloween, bloody good film. Excellent. Okay. Uh, that, is that on a channel? Netflix. It's Netflix. That's on Netflix. It, it was. I don't know how the um, algorithms work, but basically, I logged into Netflix yesterday, and it just came up and said, "Brit, just watch Halloween, you dickhead." There was no like. There was no like mulling around through it. It was just they advertised play. Do it. Just do it. Some yeah. messing about. Um, right as well. <laughs> uh, American History X is also on Netflix. Um, and this is the story of a kid played by Edward Furlong who witnesses his Nazi brother played by Edward Norton killing two black men who attempt to steal his car. Um, so while in prison, um, Edward Furlong, the younger brother, he writes a school paper on Mein Kampf by a certain Mr. Hitler and he is told off by his black principal and told to write an essay instead on his brother 
Edward Norton, the Nazi. So, um, so yeah, so basically it's sort of about Edward Furlong reminiscing about his brother's fascist, rise to fascism um, and his hateful speeches. Um, we also get to see what um, what Edward Norton is like after prison, uh, an apparently reformed man. Um, and finally, we get to see his experiences in prison, sort of flashbacks, and and why it is that he changed his ways. Um, the quality of the performances in this film are very good. Like Edward Furlong's really good, and Edward Norton. I was just about excellent. to say, what about Edward Furlong? Yeah, he's really good. He's, I mean, he's just a bit of a naive kid, really. And um, but Edward Norton's genuinely quite scary. He's really buffed up in this as well. And um, so the performance is really good and it's well made. I think it, it was, um, what's his name? The guy who made it, something K. I'll, I'll find out his name. But anyway. Um, Peter K. Well, I was thinking Peter K, but then I thought, no, that can't be, you can't, you can't Paul share K. it. Paul K, yeah, I think that's more like it. Um, so anyway, yeah, apparently um, the, yeah, the director didn't have any control over this by the end. And it actually it was completely like re-edited um, um, by Edward Norton. I think that the in the original script um, at the end, the idea was that after all this, after all this like reformation stuff, actually, then you see him taking a turn again and becoming a Nazi, showing his true colours sort of thing. But this is much more sanitised, the version that actually ended up in the cinema, which is where the he is genuinely a reformed character. And that's kind of where my problem with the film is, because I don't really buy the journey that Edward Norton's character takes in this, because... Yes, his experience in prison is plausible and laudable. Basically, he kind of meets this black guy and they can become friends, essentially, and he learns to live alongside black people. But his transformation in that time in, because he's not there for that long, but his transformation is so deep and so complete, it just doesn't ring true at all. The fact that he comes out a completely different man and he's just like, he comes out and all his like ex-Nazi mates with like swastikas tattooed on their eyelids and stuff. You know, they um, it's it's a magical tr Hollywood transformation, really. And and then, of course, on top of that, this magical transformation is then passed down to the brother in an even more implausible way. Basically, just I know that Ed um, Furlong's character is meant to be impressionable, look up to his brother, but you know, he's being fixed as well by this magical transformation. Um, so, yes, while it is, it is very well made and it is well acted, um, it's, it's all a bit, it's actually a bit schmaltzy, to be honest. Like, I don't really believe in it. I don't believe in the journey that the characters take in the film. Why was it re-edited? Was it because what was the original vision for it? Do, do you know that? Tony Cave was the guy. Um, I'm not sure why. I think there was some kind of um, there was some kind of disagreement between Edward Norton and Tony Kay. Um, 
and I, I'm not sure why it is that Edward Norton had so much power over this, but pff, who knows? But apparently, yes, it was it was Edward Norton's cut that was the one that made it into cinemas, and I mean, it got very, it got good critical response at the time, but I don't know. It just seems a little bit simplistic to me. This concept that this really really brutal savage nazi like he is you see him making speeches to people and like having this worryingly deep thesis about race relations uh like he's obviously thought about it and read about it a lot he's quite articulate in his racism and persuasive in the way that he talks to people so it runs really deep he's not just reacting to things he's really really thought about it and studied his horrendous craft and yet you know this experience in prison where he just sort of has a black mate basically utterly transforms him into a totally different person and i get the message that it's providing which is nice i'm just not sure really that it, it could ever be as simple as that would that it were so simple <sighs> Um, yeah, I, 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 my experience with the film was, I remember watching it. I, I don't tend to watch um, films that are like heavy duty, and I remember watching it when I was a kid. And because growing up in the valleys, where th- there was a lot of, you know, a, a lot of hatred towards um, minorities and gays, it, I remember watching it and just thinking, oh, I just I, like in my spare time, I don't want to have to sit through the stuff that I, I try <laughs> to avoid in my personal life, like with with certain family members and things. And I just remember it really affecting me because I just thought, well, that's like the that's the end result. That's the natural end result yes. of 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 racism. And I just I just remember it making me feel really uncomfortable. I mean, like it was late 90s, so I would have been quite young and I probably would yeah. obviously be able to watch it more even even headed now, but um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I tend to avoid films like that. That basically, I want to be entertained. I don't want to be sad when I watch a film. Yeah. But um, but yeah, okay. No, it's interesting to say that you you thought it um, um, schmaltzy because I I was watching an interview weirdly with Edward Norton um, re- relatively recently, and he's talking about his career, and he really holds that film in high regard, mm. and. I've never. I always just assumed it was like a, you know, this this really full on intelligent. Uh, but I, I obviously like, I don't remember it very well because I watched it when I was about fourteen. But yeah, it's interesting for you to just take it apart and not. And although there's a, a good message at the core of it, it's not a believable message or not presented in a believable way. Mm, it just seems like a very. <laughs> it's a very Hollywood message, really. And I think maybe if it. Maybe if just been a bit longer or something, if they'd been, it's the part, it's the transition between hateful Nazi and, you know, completely liberal, free thinking, open minded. Yeah. Um, like decent, morally upstanding older brother. I did not get that transition. It was not portrayed effectively enough yeah. because he's only in prison to drop off a parcel isn't he? he's a postman exactly. she's literally there for two or three minutes exactly uh, um so yeah um uh well the next one i've got is enola holmes but should we leave that for a bit later on because we've both seen that uh well we can crack Which on with it now i don't have crack much to say about it um well yeah i well i 
I actually enjoyed it, but I realize I'm not the target audience. Um, I do fancy. So yeah, for people who aren't I've heard of this Enola Holmes. It's it's a very different uh, approach to Enola Holmes than seen in the BBC TV series, who's played by Total Screamer in that TV series. So this is Millie Bobby Brown, fresh off Stranger Things. I've never seen TV shows aren't my bag, so I've never seen Stranger Things. Um, so this is my first time watching her in a film, and it's sort of a, a coming of age story about uh, who uh, behind Mycroft and Sherlock on a mission to find her missing mother. Paid, played by the seemingly ageless Helena Bonham Carter. I will say, before I your take on it, I will say that what I found distracting and what I think I will find distracting about all of Millie Bobby Brown's films is that she sounds like she's got a cold. She's got a really thick, chocolatey voice that sounds like she's got a cold. Yeah, um, yeah. There's a bit where she says shark training to think, and she says shark training and it reminded me of them. Um, there's a podcast called um, Alice Isn't Dead which is just a tedious like long form horror story podcast thing, but at the start of it, someone says, "Welcome to Alice as a dad," and I just thought, "Blow your nose! You sound like Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day." <laughs> Shove a lamp, sip up your bum. So, um, yeah. So, how, what did you think of it anyway? Uh, I thought it's deeply forgettable, to be honest. I, it went on a bit as well. It seemed to me just like, just like a one of these BBC Christmas special things or something. It looked bad. Like uh, there was some nice cinematography, I suppose, but uh, like the CGI backgrounds and stuff, it just looked a bit cheap. I, I think she's good. I think she's got obviously a, a future. She's she'll be a star and that. And it was nice to see um, what's his face, um, who plays Henry Sherlock? Cavill? It's yeah, Henry Cavill. Henry, yeah, Henry Brit fancies me Cavill. Henry <laughs> yeah. Cavill's Mirror World, in fact. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and so that was. That was cool. And um, yeah, I just it's very yeah, we're not the target audience, really. It seems to be for a, a much younger audience, to be honest, an audience of Millie Bobby Brown's age, really, isn't it? And well, this is I, one of the things I said to Faye when we were watching was I enjoy I did enjoy it. It was long and it did. It did feel like a franchise starter. Yeah. Um, but what I what I what I thought was um, if I had a young daughter, and yeah. I was watching it with her. I can imagine she would absolutely love it, and it would be a film they'd watch again and again. The the kind of constant eye rolling and winking, actual winking at the camera, got on my nerves. Um, yeah. Uh, but but yeah, I like I just kept for all the sort of flaws and bits that I was like, nah. I thought I'm not the target audience, and I can imagine that this would be really appealing to a young child. Yeah, that's a good point. We have to keep that in mind because yes, you can imagine if you were watching it with uh, like a daughter of that age or something, then. You know, it's pretty shallow, but all of the kind of girl power stuff and kind of quite brief references to suffragettes and stuff would at least trigger the imagination in that child. I have to say as well that when she's this young, attractive 16-year-old girl walking around herself around London, I couldn't help but just the cynic in me thinking, you would be dead. You would be attacked and robbed and dead. Um <laughs> But obviously, it didn't take that approach. <laughs> no, not in the picture postcard version of London. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, there wasn't actual effluent flowing through the streets either. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's different from how I imagine London in the um, 19th century. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was. it's okay. But, yes, we made it through it without 
it being for us at all. Yeah. Um, um, okay, where, where do we go now? Do you, do you, if, how I've many got you, three left. Okay, how many have I got left? One, two, oh, I've got about five. Nice. Go All on, right. then off your trot. All right. I'll talk about This Is England. Plus, okay. here's a bit of TV as well. Plus eight, uh, plus This Is England, 86, 88, and 90. So the This Is England was a film uh, made in 2006, 2007, and I paid for that on Prime. Um, it was because I was watching American History X, and I, uh, and I thought, I remember This Is England being a better version of, like, that neo-nazi type um depiction anyway so shane meadows made the original this is england and prior to this he'd made he'd made several good films including the excellent bob hoskins boxing drama 24 7 and the very scary dead man's shoes which of course had paddy considine being terrifying and toby kebble very good um so this is england set in 1983 and it focuses on this preteen kid called Sean, um, played by the very odd-looking Thomas Turgus. His dad died in the Falklands in 82, and now he's just this lost kid on in an estate in Birmingham. He meets a group of old-school skinheads. Uh, they're older guys and girls who bring him into their group. They care for him. They make him feel good. And these are their, their skinheads, but they're not not the skinhead you're thinking of as in they're not a bunch of racists in fact one of them is black and they're actually just like a bunch of just youngsters really pissing about getting drunk anyway then their old friend combo is released from prison combo is played by stephen graham and i've got to say this is one of my favorite performances ever he is stephen graham oh, okay. is so scary and he's charismatic and he's grotesque and persuasive and contradictory and vicious and vulnerable and he basically convinces young sean um and some others to join the national front because he says that immigration is taking over england so the film is about the various relationships in the group and the fallout from the bombshell that is combo um the reason we focus on sean the youngster is because he's so impressionable i mean he is a kid who's dealing with grief obviously uh, losing his father and he's desperately missing a strong male role model and he's also looking for an outlet for his rage um and yeah it's a it's a really good film and i i loved it when it came out but i can also see why it was developed into a tv series he, it was basically made into um this is england 86 and then there's one called 88 and then 90 and it was they were two years apart and they were they're just mini series designed to flesh out the characters and stuff. And they're all really good. And it moves beyond the whole neo-Nazi thing into other very dark territory like suicide, incest, rape, drugs, etc. But what makes it very watchable is it's not just, you know, British working class misery porn, because Shane Meadows focuses equally on the kind of fun times in this very poor community like there's a lot of scenes of drinking and clubbing karaoke pools how a pool house parties and that sort of thing and i think that's what sets this series apart from other grim british dramas because it's clearly autobiographical in his part and it's created by someone who's obviously lived the life he's depicting and he and he doesn't ignore the very 
positive human qualities that are present at any level of society the qualities of like loyalty humor and group resilience and that and mm. um i'd say towards the end the series does skirt some in-betweeners style immature humor um oh, yes and i hate the in-betweeners because of that but i think well, that's what we were like when we were in school exactly i i, I loathe that stuff uh. but i think it's okay I think it gets away with it here because there around it is this framework of seriousness and earnestness behind everything. So it's not just, oh, you remember when things were like this? You remember when you remember when you had to pull the ring pull off a can? Ha ha ha. You know. You remember when dog shit was white? Ha That's Because the, the past, dogs were it? just getting loads of like ash and not all the nutrients in the food it was just cheap crap and really dangerous <laughs> <laughs> um anyway so i put this alongside american history x because its depiction of the redemption of a nazi is far more convincing okay it does have a lot more time to do it to be fair um but the combo character stephen graham's character is is really really interesting because he's so utterly unlikable and vicious in the original film but then over the course of the series you in his time in prison and a certain Is it sacrifice the same characters do they yes play yeah game? all the same actors in that so cool. you get to watch them get older as well um and it's a believable sense of redemption and it doesn't end up all kind of cheery you know every, i'm completely redeemed sort of thing it's more believable and it's also in because it's more believable it's also more heartening in a way it's like okay you know you're not you're not just your very worst deed if you see what i mean that there is that anyone can be redeemed um if they put the work in and that's the real theme of the whole saga really is redemption of the various characters and i think it's well worth watching I'm not sure if the original film is on Channel 4, but all of the series are on Channel 4. Um, you know, the whatever the Channel 4 streaming site is, all four, something like that. But as well, it's re definitely recommended. Um, I mean, you could watch the original film, and if you like that, then watch the rest of them, because they're all just as high quality. I think we could be listening to a film of the week. <laughs> uh, who knows? I don't know. I've got to Karate Kid Part 2, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so I wa another one I watched this week was Shelter, which is a 2010 psychological horror starring Julianne Moore and Jonathan Rhys-Meyers and another man who's... I always want to say Jeffrey Tambor, but it's not. It's going to bother me. Um, can you do me a favor? Oh, I'll, I'll find out myself now. It's going to bother me, actually, his name. It's an actor that constantly smiles, and it really affects his performances. <laughs> I will find out his name one moment. Uh, what's this? Uh, what's the film called? Shelter, 2010. Jeffrey DeMunn. Uh, okay. <clears throat> so, this is a film. Uh, Shelter is... Julianne Moore is a psychologist whose husband was... Uh, uh, killed during like a botched robbery three years before and she's got a young daughter called uh, Samantha uh, and 
her father is another celebrated psychologist called uh, well, I don't know his name, but he's played by Jeffrey Demun. Have you? You know who Jeffrey Demun is. He's constantly smiling in his films, and it's like at, almost at the expense of character, Rupert. Um, <laughs> he is a cheery chap. Um, and what? Oh, is... I know him. He's in yeah. uh, The Walking Dead as well, isn't he? Yes, smiling, yeah. smiling yes. through the Holocaust. My third album. Yeah, he's in The um, Mists as well. But um, of course, everyone in The Mist ended up in The Walking Dead anyway. But yeah, go on. <laughs> um, and. Yeah, so the the story is that Jonathan Rhys Meyers, whom I had given up on, um, plays a, a character called. Uh, well, when you first meet him, he's called David. So they picked him up. He was wandering the streets, and he is really meek and wheelchair bound. And uh, Jeffrey Demand says to Julianne Moore, "You know, you should come here and just I want you to just spend some time with 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 this person and just let me know what you think." And what happens is halfway through the interview, Jeffrey uh, with Julianne Moore and Jonathan Rhys Meyers, Jeffrey Demun sort of calls a phone on the desk, and he says, "Can I speak to Adam?" And there's a almost a physical transformation in Jonathan Rhys Meyers, and he takes on a completely different character. And the first half of the film is effectively Julianne Moore trying to get to the root of his psychosis. Mm-hmm. So you you've got um, you know he can he's got completely different physical like in one form he's um disabled and he's in a wheelchair but when he's adam his his physiology actually changes and he can walk and this is all confirmed by x-rays and stuff and they're trying to wonder what's going on but then what happens halfway through the film is they just bring in a load of you know mysterious mountain folk and then it Mm -hmm. just massively becomes supernatural and all of the mystery you realize is kind of cheaply earned it's Uh just oh actually it's all just mountain magic and and they and then it's just a load of exposition that just so you you understand what's happening when it gets to the last you know sort of thrill ride 15 minutes and it's really unearned i would have i watched this film a long time ago and it's telling when i watch films and think have i seen that and then when it finishes, I think, oh, yeah, I've seen that, actually. Yeah, I remember now. Um, and then I wipe it from my mind. Um, but it, I, there was a lot of this, these films, where I'm, a lot of films with mystery where it just can't hold up. They can't, yeah. their own. Um, and, and there's a lot of moments in this as well that are just really, really irritating, where th- things are clearly clearly out of hand and like there's he's kept in this mental hospital where he's obviously under care he's not been arrested for anything at the start of the film he's just been found kind of wandering the streets and taken into this this sort of hospice and yet when it cuts to him uh just for just because it's a horror he's like having thrashing around having these nightmares and sleeping on this just like metal trestle and you think you you wouldn't you would just be in a bed in a nice room. Stop putting him in a prison. Like filming him and having like thrashing around in a prison. It's not like that. Um, and the, the, when he transforms between these identities that he's got, it's clearly a physical supernatural transformation. And mm. when you watch it, his body is twisting and contorting, and his jaw is like distended and stuff. And and it's very clear this is not like a mental condition. But yet they push that for 45 minutes. It's basically Julianne Moore saying, oh, it obviously can be explained. And you think, well, I have got, I am not a doctor. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychotherapist. I'm not a psychiatrist. And I've never even been to have any kind of like, <laughs> like um, training in those areas. But that's ghosts, that is. Uh, because it's clearly just like not a mental condition. It's very physical, <laughs> um, and he's clearly like 
warping in front of her eyes. So that was irritating. And and then by the end of the film, it's hard. It's 2010, so I can't spoil it. But the film also doesn't hold up to its own internal logic because of the, 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 there's a sentimental ending. And that sentimental ending comes about because the film doesn't stick to the, to the logic it has sort of set down for itself. Mm. And that, that, that was like the final straw for Meth and I hate, that's just cheating. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, if you'd like to watch Julianne Moore crying or Jeffrey Dimon smiling at inopportune moments, tuck in. So Jonathan Rhys Myers, has this changed your opinion of him in any way? Or... Um, no, I, I think <laughs> he just, what, what should, he's honestly his hands, he needs to stop biting his nails because every time there's a close of his hands, I just think like you're an actor, just give him a scrub, give him a scrub and stop biting them. How about that? Put some falsies on. Um, but this this film, of course, he takes on these different identities for reasons I won't go into because it's just totally spoiler-tastic. But um, he, he's putting on different voices, talking in different ways and, you know, acts differently. But it's fine. But I, like, I haven't um, seen him... Like, what's his face in Split? Oh, uh, James McAvoy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very much like that. But, but not, not as good. good. No. Um, and I think that's what and seeing him in all the other oh every other film I've seen him in where he's just like the, the worst part of the film. Yeah. I just think it's more like it feels more theatrical than like there's no subtlety. But then this isn't a film that's about subtlety, I suppose. Um, um Velvet Goldmine is a good film with Jonathan Rhys Myers in it. I'm not this sure. Is an exa- this is sure. an example, isn't it, of him being good in a film once and yes. then getting cast on stuff. I think so. I'm not even sure he's that good in it, to be honest. He's not the best person in it, but at least it is a good film. So, and he does he doesn't completely ruin it. So yeah, ah. mm, it's a good movie, worth watching. Velvet Goldman. It, it is one that has escaped me, um, and I, yeah. I should watch it. Um, okay, let's move on then to Karate Kid. Shall we? Okay. These are on Netflix. Karate Kid One and Two. Everyone knows Karate Kid. It's the story of the poor kid who moves from New Jersey to L.A., I think. He's cocky and confident, but he has no friends. He meets Mr. Miyagi, an old dude from Okinawa. Was he played by Pat? Pat Morita. I noticed that in the film, they they don't refer to it as Japan, even though it is part of Japan, Okinawa. I don't know whether it's because of the history between the U.S. and Japan, but anyway. Um, So Miyagi teaches him karate using ancient methods, uh, lots of quotable rules about for life, about balance and stuff. Um, meanwhile, there's Cobra Kai, a dojo which teaches no mercy methods of karate. So this kid, Daniel LaRusso, and his arch rival, Johnny Lawrence in Cobra Kai, will end up going head to head at the All Valley Championship. Um, the actual fight scenes are pretty brief and tame by today's standards, and it's all quite predictable because it's a sports movie, um, quite nicely shot, quite well acted, good support from Elizabeth Shue, uh, the go-to girl for 80s teens. Uh, yeah, and what, so what stands out really are the performances and the chemistry between Ralph Macchio playing Daniel LaRusso and Pat Morita. Yeah, uh, and then there's Karate Kid 2 is less well-known, I suppose, although I think it still did pretty well at the time. In this one, uh, Daniel LaRusso travels to Okinawa with Miyagi uh, because Miyagi's father is dying. They find that the village is being threatened by Miyagi's arch nemesis. Um, 
I'd say there's more at stake in the second film because they're actually fighting for the livelihoods of the villagers and possibly their own lives. And there's quite a sweet romance between Daniel LaRusso and this local girl. Um, I mean, the film follows the basic trajectory of the first beat for beat, to be honest, but with more kind of exotic locations and a slightly more dramatic finale. Although I think it's, it probably lacks that familiar kind of teen appeal of the first one. Um, but it's basically the same film again, really. I, I want to <laughs> mention as well um, Cobra Kai. This was the TV series that was originally aired on YouTube, um, but was then bought by Netflix. And yeah, I've seen that advertised on Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. Each season has the 10, 30-minute parts, so it's quite consumable. And it brings back the original actors, and it's obviously focusing on... Daniel Russo, Ralph Macchio, and Johnny Lawrence, the one he kicked in the face in the first film, played by William Zabker. And they reprise their roles. And basically, Johnny Lawrence is now this kind of washout drunk, uh, whereas Daniel is this wealthy auto salesman. So it's it's quite a neat reversal because Johnny Lawrence came from money, whereas Daniel LaRusso came from poverty. So it's kind of reversed their fortunes, if you see what I mean. Um, yeah. Also, what's quite a nice reversal is the fact that Daniel LaRusso has turned out to be a bit of a dick. And <laughs> so that's quite fun. Johnny Lawrence is kind of a dick too, but there's something quite appealing about his total resistance to any social progress. Like he has this <laughs> very, his very clear worldview, uh, which just rejects any kind of uh, social progress whatsoever. And, his, and he has this complete disparaging this dismay at the fragility of modern youth and the story is pretty absurd it ends up with johnny lawrence's estranged son being trained by daniel larusso while daniel's daughter sorry daniel's daughter's boyfriend is being trained by johnny so they their rivalry their rivalry powers these kind of petty conflicts all over the place now i find this kind of 80s throwback much more appealing than something then than something like say stranger things because it's modern day and they can directly address the fact that some things have gotten better uh, in society while other aspects of modern life are a bit more regrettable you know for example casual misogyny was not good but then equally it does it it has this nice critique of like social media and stuff so that's pretty cool um and it's a very easy watch and it has real heart and it has this kind of uncomplicated 80s energy to it whilst also being modern. And I do like the fact that they've got the original actors like and they look pretty good. Like Johnny Lawrence, he just he they're just like 50 year old men now, really. Well, probably a bit older, really. And, Are there fight um, scenes? Are there, yeah, there... a lot of fight scenes and pretty good, pretty good fight scenes. And yeah, I like it. I think it's is well worth a watch. Second season is probably a bit better than the first. But at the end of the day, you know, we're talking 10, 10 episodes of 30 minutes each. So it's very bite sized. And um, yeah. yeah, I did enjoy that. So that's recommended. So that's on Netflix now. Oh, OK, then, yeah, I, I, I may I may watch it like in years to come. I, as you know, I just, I just find like TV series massively time consuming and boring. And yes. I'm watching the boys at the moment because I really like the graphic novel. So I've got like mm-hmm. a vested interest in that. <laughs> and I fancy Keith, uh, uh, Carl Urban. Yeah. Um, 
I watched the first episode of Ratched, the 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 you know oh, yeah. uh, Sarah Paulson, and it just I watched it and I just thought, oh, I can see where this is going to go. This is an American horror story light. Yeah. Three seasons of her being sneaky in a hospital, and it it just feels one dimensional. And I just can't. I haven't got the inclination to watch TV shows, so yeah. No matter how how highly recommended they are, I always just think that's thirty hours. That is. That's just how I see it. Um, I can't bring myself to watch Ratchet because uh, the description put me off the way it was about the making of a monster and stuff. And I was thinking, well, I've watched One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I, I assume it's the same Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, and it always bothered me about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest that she, I felt that she was a bit unfairly treated in that film. I never really saw her as a monster. I saw her as someone who is a bit stuck in their ways, but ultimately quite a strict professional. And yes, okay, Jack Nicholson comes in and stirs the place up. But I never really felt that she was a monster as such. I mean, she was pretty brutal, but it was a bit more complex than that. So just to call her, you know, make her out to be some kind of, I don't know, you know, like Norman Bates type character, it seemed a bit of a stretch, but anyway... Yeah, so I oh, well, you, you, this is specialism for you because I, I haven't seen one floor of the cuckoo's nest since I was in my teens, and uh, but this is very much she's just this kind of solipsistic, manipulative, unfeeling woman, and you're just like, okay, okay I'm, I'm not, I'm not watching three seasons of this, you know, <laughs> ten hour episode, uh, sort of hour long episode. So another one I watched uh, was The Right with Anthony Hopkins. Oh yeah, Which I've seen that floating is... around Prime. <laughs> oh yeah, you know, you know, it's Prime territory, baby. Um, and I know, I know, I've already mentioned this to you because it struck me the moment when I, the moment after I watched it was, uh, I mentioned Stigmata on this podcast a few yes. weeks ago, a few months ago, and my problem with that was that it was just like an uh, an interesting question of uh, the sort of debilitation of a person's faith, uh, um, but then it was kind of problematic because the whole film was like yeah yeah but we can't have any subtlety this is a thriller so it was thriller 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 all the way through and it's ridiculous set pieces the right got middling to negative reviews but i actually quite liked it because it, it did stick to its guns it's the story of a young priest right. who is um struggling with his faith and you know feels like he's kind of been it's been forced on him and he gets sent to uh i think it's is it Portugal or somewhere? He gets sent somewhere to Spain or Portugal uh, to to work with a, this Welsh priest, um, played by Anthony Hopkins, good uh, to to a sort of assist in exorcisms. And it's whilst the end of the film does ramp up slightly, you know, in order to have a third act uh, involving possession and, and and the exorcism itself, mm. it never gets out of hand. It's obviously supernatural, but the, I think a lot of critics at the time said it was kind of slow-paced and a bit meandering, and that the main character, I forget the actor's name, um, who is an Irish actor, was kind of a bit of a blank slate. But I quite like that, because what happens is, as the film's going on and he's seeing these things and getting more invested in, in the things around him, um, and his, he's pushing... All of the evidence of, of these these exorcisms and possessions taking place, but his his natural inclination to just disbelieve them, look for something else, and he doesn't get 
overly emotionally reactive towards things and doesn't just fly mm. off the handle. He is quite kind of calm and collected most of the time. I like that. I like the fact that it stuck to its guns. Um, and well, rather than just running out into the street. Yeah, past yeah. cars in, in heavy rain. Uh, I think as well, they were even, even at the end, I'm not going to spoil it because obviously it's, it's only about nine years old. I think it's 2011. Even when the film is, is complete and there's like a little sort of denouement, uh, even then, it, it's um, I like the way the characters are portrayed and how they interact. It Again, I can imagine a lot of people saw it as anticlimactic, but I think it sticks to how the characters have all been throughout the film, where none of them are sort of caricatures. It's not good or bad. It's just you, you can believe in things and not have them fundamentally change your actual personality. It's mm. just a, like an internal belief system. And I quite like that. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I... I, I and it's a film that I think I would watch again, if only for the moment where Anthony Hopkins uh, speaks in like a child's thick Welsh Valleys accent, uh, which I think needs to be in every film. <laughs> uh, going, going back to his roots. <laughs> back to his uh, Port Talbot roots. Um, so, yeah, it's... Um, yeah, I, I liked it. And I, it's basically what stigma, I feel like Stigmata should have been. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm happy with that. Wow, good film. I might actually have to. This is it's been it's been lingering on my watch list for so long now. <laughs> you, I think you'd have to be prepared for like you know nice nice glass of wine or in your case like a cup of tea and just sit there and just. I think when you when you know it's not like an explosive big yes. budget thriller when you know it's going to be like a little little bit quiet you know a little bit more subtle. Good, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. So would you, is it a horror movie? Would you say? It's more like a. I'd say it's more it's more like a supernatural drama. There's no real yeah. horror in any of it. Okay. Yeah, so it's not trying to freak you out. No. Okay. Okay. Um well another film which doesn't really fit into any particular genre is The Devil All the Time, which you've seen as well, I believe. Yes, yes, I have. This is a Netflix I guess it's a Netflix original. I don't know. Um but anyway, it's a it's a new film, and it's an intensely dark thriller based on a novel by someone called Donald Ray Pollock. It's directed by Antonio Campos, and his last film was Christine, not sadly a remake of the John Carpenter film, but it was about a news a true story about a news reporter who shot herself on live TV. So cheery. Stuff. Oh yes, yes, yeah. I remember hearing about with. That. Um, What's her face? Rebecca Hall, I want to say. Rebecca anyway, Hall, yes. Yeah. Um, so anyway, The Devil of the Time, it's ostensibly about a couple of serial killers rampaging across Ohio in the 1950s. And they're a bit kinky. Um, they take they take dirty photos before killing their victims quite violently. Um Tom Holland, Spider-Man kid, plays this kid who is taught tough love by his veteran father, played by Bill Skarsgård. Father committed suicide after his wife died. So Tom Holland's character, Arvin, is taken in by his grandmother and then he falls in love with his adopted sister. Uh, so, uh, so events kind of inexorably lead to Arvin coming into contact with the roaming killers and along the way, there are other grotesque characters, uh, most notably Robert Pattinson's 
predatory preacher with his wild accent and and also there's this cop brother of the female killer one of the yeah one of the serial killers um a brother's cop a crooked cop um it is all incredibly almost absurdly dark and twisted but if you can stomach it then it's it's pretty good like i just came to terms with the fact that nothing nice was going to happen at any point i, I found it i i wasn't a fan I, I i liked how it looked yeah um i liked how it looked and the, and the performances were, were cool and, and yeah. I'm, I'm a sucker for film set in like the deep south anyway but what i found was it was just one awful vignette to the next and i know they all yes. kind, of, kind of tie in together but it's almost like, apart from the very initial sequence involving Bill Skarsgård, mm-hmm. it it was very much it would cut to something, and and you instantly knew what was going to happen, how it was going to play out, and how it was going to end. And yes. and, and I just thought this feels like a, an anthology, like an overarching anthology split, and it just feels really, really one dimensional. Yeah, I was just very tired tired of it by the time it ended. It felt a bit like one of those like a Cormac McCarthy type story, you know, where it's set in this very, it's set in a place which is in itself quite beautiful and seductive, but such rotten things are happening to every single person who lives yeah, there. It's just no, like no redeeming. It, oh, it's just horrendous. You but, can imagine, it, may, it yeah. may as well have started right. And been like a long, like, um, a, like a really jaunty tune, like, as a camera swoops down, like a really kind of, uh, smoky, like timber mill town. It's like, hello everybody. And welcome back to everything's shit. And then you're like, ah, yay. And then awful things happen for two hours. Yeah, basically. I'd say that the, yeah, it is a bit of a slog, to be honest, for well, most of it. I'd say that it comes together quite nicely towards the end because it is a bit, the narrative is pretty fractured for the most part. There's a lot of characters introduced uh, and it jumps about a lot in terms of its chronology near the start, but it does come together towards the end. And there's some genuinely tense scenes towards the end. Uh, Did you find I found it a bit as well? There was a touch. There was a touch of the what was the film called? Alien. What was the first Alien film that we both don't like? Begins with a P. Prometheus. Oh, Prometheus. Yeah. yeah. It almost assumes that the the viewer would have lost interest and needed to be reminded of things like the bit where he was in the car with bloody knuckles mirroring his father, and it flashed back and flashed back to him. And and it's like, hey, remember? It's like that, isn't it? It's like he's following his father's footsteps. Yeah, Yeah, I know that. So I know that because this film is one dimensional. So yeah, um, yeah, I, it is I, relentless. It is relentless. You talk, but it, it does look gorgeous. To be fair, and oh yeah, the, it's really the performances like are the performances are so good in it. Like everyone in it is really good. So that keeps it going. Uh, but I know what you mean. You really, really have to be in the mood for something utterly, irredeemably horrible the whole way through and it and i think in a way films that are like this where they're just so relentless in their brutality are a little bit disingenuous about human nature and stuff it was what put me off Cormac mccarthy in the end because it was just so relentlessly grim and dark i just thought well that's it's not really fair on humanity (laughs) i don't i don't think i don't think this is yeah people have some pretty rough lives but by 
showing every single experience they have as utterly irredeemable and horrible, then I don't know, it makes it less credible somehow. So yeah, that was the I, devil I, I, all the time. I mean, like you said, there was the there were lots of it. I like that, yeah. So, um, and it is the devil all the time, misery all the time. <laughs> um, I have got one more, which is Ip Man Four. Okay. Um, obviously, I've watched all the other Ip Man films. Are you familiar with the series at all? Not at all. No, I've always wanted to be, but maybe it, I need the recommendation to get me into it. Well. Um, well, four films. Jump straight to I, number four. The, the, <laughs> the first time I heard about the Ip Man films um, was, uh, and I had no idea what they were. Um, it, I was on a stag weekend, and I was having a conversation about action films with someone, and they said, uh, "You know, have you ever seen the Ip Man films? If you, if you like stuff, you know, if you like Tony Yar, Tony Jar yeah. in Ongbak, you should watch Ip Man. It's amazing." and I watched the first one thinking it would be like an out and out kind of martial arts film, but it's actually more dramatic. So Ip Man uh, is an the the series is based on the actual life of of a guy who lived uh, a while ago and actually trained Bruce Lee at one point in Wing Chun, Mm. uh, which is kind of a, a very economic martial art in terms of its movement. And it's very spiritual. And, Donnie Yen plays plays uh, Ip Man, and it just each uh, film is sort of a segment of his life, and it's really interesting because Donnie Yen, when you see if you type in Donnie Yen into mm. uh, he's fifty seven now into thing, he just looks really like buff and flashy and kind of cool and modern, and in these play a, a quiet. Uh, contemplative sort of uh, spiritual man and, and it is quite cool to see and I remember watching the other films and and, and I did really enjoy them that the fight scenes are really really good and it his he had an interesting life uh, you know mm. growing up in um, in China and they're all very interesting and the other films are mostly set in China this film specifically the fourth and final film uh, is set mostly in San Francisco he is in his in the film he's in his 50s and he is he wants to go to san francisco because he wants his sort of wayward son to join uh, a school there and and get get a really good education and when he goes to san francisco he realizes that actually it's not this sort of mecca for chinese immigrants to go to and you know and then there's like a nice a pocket of Chinese culture for for him to get involved with, whilst also getting sort of Americanized and getting the American education that he wants. He realizes that it's just bullies and fractured, and the, and the Chinese are mistreated, and yeah. it's kind of his slow disillusionment with with the ideology, the relationship between the different martial arts schools that make up make up this uh, area of San Francisco, and the, the um, conflicting kind of ideologies between them. Mm. It's all it's all good and it is a good film and it's 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 nicely dramatic and uh, Donnie Yen is just as amazing as always um, and there are some really nice fight sequences and obviously spoiler alert Scott Adkins is in it as well as <laughs> a, a really heavy-handed drill instructor that gets involved in like the main fight that my problem isn't with the story or any of the a- acting or or any of the familial drama stuff I had a problem with wire work. Because mm. 
this is a film. Itman was a grandmaster of Wing Chun. Donnie Yen is one of like the best, um, you know, film martial artists. And you've got Scott Adkins, who's obviously a very, very capable fighter and someone of whom I fancy. And the, there are some really nice sequences um, involving uh, tense sequences when, when this, this sort of different martial arts schools, heads of the martial arts schools have disagreements and get together and have, have basically punch each other in the face until the problem is solved, all good. But for some reason, every now and again, they'll just use wire work and it just seems really incongruous with what's happening. It's all very grounded. And then all of a sudden, someone will just fly across the room a bit or like jump up and kind of glide onto like, and you're like, what? Why is this happening? Mm. It doesn't, it really doesn't need to be there. And it's really distractingly added. And, and that was my major problem with the film was just why are they using wire work in this film, in this quite like relatively grounded familial drama? Mm. So, uh, yeah, it's good. And it is a really nice uh, quadrilogy, is the term, is it? Yes. A quadrilogy yeah. of films. And it's nice. I don't watch much drama, and this is probably as close as I will get to a drama film, in all fairness. Yeah, I just wish that they just said, should we just not have any wire stunts? That'd be brilliant. Uh, yeah, yeah, that doesn't so, seem completely in keeping with the tone of the rest of the film. It's, mm. uh, but there's one sequence where uh, it man, like, he's in a fight with another grandmaster. They both use, like, contrasting styles, all good, all interesting. And then he just, like, throws a punch, and then he kind of gets thrown. Uh, and then kind of glides across the room and then like pushes himself off a beam with his arm and turns around in midair and you're like, that just looked crap. Mm. And it didn't need to look crap. He could have just done a roll and got up and it, what, you know, keep it grounded. So yeah, uh, that's me done. And that was it, man Four, which is on Netflix as are all the other films, I think. And it's all oh, really? watched. Yeah. Well, I might have to dip in then. Yeah. Um, in. Eh? Oh, nice. Uh, all right, Dark Skies then, which is on Prime. So I think I'll keep, I, I'll interrupt if I've seen this. I think I may have seen it. <laughs> it's an alien abduction horror. Um, my question is, what is it about? I've been thinking about this. What is it about alien abduction stories that makes them uniquely stupid? Right, because. I can watch endless horror movies about ghosts and zombies, which are on paper equally ridiculous. Yet the kind of UFO stuff just seems laughable to me. And I think it's something to do with the nature of conspiracy theorists, because you don't get you don't really get many conspiracy theorists claiming that ghosts walk among us or that the zombie uprising is going to happen tomorrow or whatever. But there is a whole subculture of people taking alien abduction nonsense very seriously. And um, and in this film, actually, J.K. Simmons rocks up for a cameo and he gets to represent all those people in this film. It's a cameo in which he looks genuinely a bit embarrassed to be there, to be honest. Anyway, so the story focuses on, you know, your standard upper middle class suburban soccer mom family. Uh <laughs> They are having money problems, which does add one interesting wrinkle. Um, but they're, basically their idyllic lifestyle is interrupted by strange intruders. Um, uh, these kind of shadowy figures. Who, who stars in this film? Sorry, I'm trying to think. Of uh, it's someone who looks like um, Colt Chris. I can't remember what his name is. Um, Jeffrey Dean Morgan. 
no honestly he looks so much like him throughout this obviously um, it's going to be completely meaningless to anyone who doesn't know chris but um, <laughs> uh, yeah let's let's see what's his name josh uh, hamilton is it? yeah that could be him let's have a look let's see his face He's he 51, have... so it could be. Yeah, it's about right. Anyway, um, so anyway, so Dark Skies. Yes, so they, these shadowy figures start turning up in the property and they'll turn off the cameras and loiter around the kids' beds um, menacingly. Uh, oh, but that's another thing about alien abduction theories and perhaps why I'm never that comfortable with them is because they're so often very obviously standing in for real world abuse. Uh, so they're kind of sad as well, really. You know, you know, the whole thing about dark figures standing over beds and stuff. The shadow in the doorway. Yeah, and all that, and probing and things. It's like, yes, okay. Yes. I think there might be a bit, something a bit more simple to explain this. Anyway, everyone should watch Mysterious Skin, for, which is a film which covers this. Anyway, so yeah. yeah. As J.K. Simmons' character does explain, the, the, he calls them these weird alien creatures, the greys. Uh, he explains they, they, they like to be mischievous, which kind of is a way of explaining the fact that they gradually ramp up their spookiness. You know, we always talk about how whenever <laughs> how ghosts like a, have a real sense yeah, of tension in film. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they'll just start by... It, it, as always, it starts with, um, yeah, stuff being rearranged in the kitchen and things. So they're a bit cheeky. Then it's like, oh, we caught them on camera. Then it's like full on, right, we're coming for you sort of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, which is ridiculous. Anyway, in the end, the this kind of fractured family have to come together to defeat the intruders, basically. It's a very tame horror movie. And I guess what it's doing is going for this kind of young horror poltergeist vibe because thinking back there is even a scene in poltergeist where something like that happens you know like where something's rearranged in the kitchen happens in the sixth sense as well it's quite a standard trope um before you know things ramp up um and similar to poltergeist i guess it it does it does ramp up to the point where by the end it's just a load of noise and shouting uh it's never scary on any level and it's weirdly boring <laughs> to be honest oh. like it's just i i think probably because of the subject matter really the the whole alien abduction thing it's just i mean they might as well be ghosts really it's no no real reason why Everything you said is, is, I actually forgot it was an alien induction film. When you're yeah. talking about the ramping up of tension, appearing by the bed, it's just ghosts, really. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, yeah. yeah. There's nothing else. I mean, they it's explained. Well, because they apparently walk among us. And like J.K. Simmons says, oh, they're so beyond our comprehension. You know, they're everywhere. But they're so beyond our comprehension, you just got to accept that they're always going to be there and stuff. It's like, okay. They're so uh, beyond our comprehension, and yes, they want to put a thermometer at my bum. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's such a basic <laughs> thing. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So beyond my comprehension. It's weird. I haven't spoken to my father in years. Yeah, so... <laughs> so, yeah. The dark skies, just lame. Uh, lame, I guess it would have been quite early in Bloomhouse's um, 
repertoire. But I think the problem is that, that it's got the word dark in the title. You've got Dark mm. City, Dark Skies. Mm. Well, uh, dark, and also it doesn't really... Dark Shadows, all bad. <laughs> dark, yes, true, actually. Um, but also it doesn't really make sense to title Dark Skies because it's got nothing to do with the sky at all. It's just... Presumably, they at one point came from the sky, but you don't, there's no sense of that. There's no mention of that whatsoever. They're just in the house. So, anyway, yeah, so that's not very good. And also on Prime is Bombshell. This is a fact based drama about a group of women at Fox News who, in 2016, accused the CEO, Roger Ailes played by John Lithgow in a fat suit. Uh, they accused him of sexual misconduct. Um, so the, there's kind of a trio of women who are the main focus. There's Megan Kelly, played by Charlize Theron. It's a woman called Gretchen Carlson, played by Nicole Kidman. And this other uh, younger lady called Kayla, who is played by Margot Robbie. So obviously they're all kind of blonde women. And yes, bombshells, I suppose, uh, for want of a better word um it's directed by jay roach and he started out with doing some pretty broad comedy he did the austin powers movies he did the meet the parents movies but he's recently gone into slightly more satirical stuff like the campaign uh which i think was the one with bill ferrell which was okay it's still pretty broad to be fair anyway this is bombshell is not a comedy really it has some funny moments like some of um, Charlie Theron's put downs to people are quite funny because she's really, really brutal with them. Um, so she's quite amusing. The makeup on Charlie Theron is incredible. Apparently there wasn't any kind of, um, I don't think they added anything to her face to actually change the shape of her face. It was all done through makeup, but she looks like a completely different person. It's remarkable. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, it's it's quite well written and competently directed. There are some quite tense scenes when it comes to like John Lithgow's character starting to kind of like say inappropriate things. Uh, it's just a bit creepy. But overall, I'd say it plays everything pretty safe. For example, I mean, anything about the Fox News network being in bed with Donald Trump is uh, kind of skipped over a little bit. I mean, Rupert Murdoch is portrayed by Malcolm McDowell, naturally, um, with another of his baffling accents. Um, but there's one moment, for example, I think the only reference to Fox News' relationship with Donald Trump is when Rupert Murdoch picks up the phone and goes, oh, hi, Donald. And it's like, okay. It's a little nod. But it, like the rest of the film, it never goes into any further depths because it there's no real depth about for example, the psychological effect of sexual harassment. And this certainly doesn't dare to go anywhere near the gray area of where, for example, career advancement ends and abuse begins. So it doesn't dare go there. Mm. Um, so it's quite shallow in a way. Uh, it, but in terms of the actual machinations of the plot, it's quite an interesting story anyway. I just think there could be a, a more hard hitting movie about the same topic because you're thinking like the actual the actual bones of the plot, which is essentially about this secret hidden in plain sight 
about what's going on at this place and how no one wants to talk about it um, because they're going to get hunted down and their careers or possibly their lives are going to be ended sort of thing. I mean, that's that's this is like 70s paranoia thriller territory, which would have been pretty cool. But it never dares to go there. It's much more palatable and digestible than that. So uh, it's a bit disappointing that, it, yeah, it's not more hard hitting. It just seems a bit lightweight for the topic. Um, but okay. it's well acted. Uh, yeah. And it's and Charlie's Theron's very, very good in it and unrecognisable. Oh, OK. Yeah, this could be one that uh, swings on the TV then at some point for me. Yeah, it's easy. And this, to watch. Is, this, yeah. And this is on Netflix. It's on Prime. Prime, sorry. It's weird that it's so light-hearted when mm. it's about it's about something that feels like it could be quite heavy duty. Especially yeah, I guess now. they're going for the a. It's, it's guess it's going for a kind of like a big short Awareness. type vibe. Um, oh, right. Okay. Yeah, I, I. But I suppose the problem is is that it's the what it's dealing with is a network which is still massive and very powerful. And a bunch of people who are still presumably working uh, in the media industry. So I can kind of understand why it doesn't want to step on toes. But then in that case, why bother making it now? Why not? I don't know. Mm. Um, why not? It, it, there's probably a more interesting version of it to be made perhaps in 20 years time. Put it that way. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I'll, I'll wait for that one then. Yeah, OK. <laughs> Um, well, I'll just wait me. 20 years <laughs> yeah, I'll be all right. and then you'll call me up and say hang on it hasn't been made yet you said this is going to be the, this film in 20 years time it's going to be really good oh no what I'll probably do is drop contact with you now and then in like 30 or 40 years ring you up again and you're like oh my god Brett, we haven't spoken for nearly half a century and I'll say where is it where is <laughs> and I'll know exactly what you're talking about um, so yeah that's me done that is everything have you got any other you must have a couple of others you watch you watch about four thousand films a second yeah i mean i did watch sister act uh yeah. on disney plus which was quite amusing i suppose i've never seen it before it's this is obviously the one about um whoopi goldberg plays this uh gangster's mole in reno uh who witnesses a murder and has to go into hiding she goes naturally she goes into hiding in a san francisco convent uh and then basically teaches them how to sing uh it's quite it's all right it's quite amiable it's directed by the same guy who made dirty dancing so you know obviously the song and dance numbers are pretty good uh do i still fancy the sort of more timid sister in it uh, which possibly, yes, I think you possibly might do. Do you still yeah. fancy it? Yes, you do, Brit. Thank you. I thought I um, did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's okay. And I like how it's, I like how it's colorblind. That's quite nice. Like it's not, I was expecting it to be like she goes into the church and it's like, oh, you know, her, you know, she's going to be some jive talking street woman and then she teach some gospel music. But it's not actually like that. It's just more about her. All right. she Yeah, she is kind of like streetwise and stuff, but it's more about her bringing some energy to the place and actually bringing, bringing them out of themselves 
the nuns in the convent so they're not just stuck in there they're actually going out into the community and stuff which is quite nice really it's quite an amiable film and the songs are good and um yeah so uh and maggie smith obviously obviously plays the um mother superior type person and she's quite good because she's it's just funny seeing Maggie Smith, very, very posh English, very reserved up against Whoopi Goldberg, who's obviously very brash. Um, but yeah, you can tell that there's a good kind of uh, chemistry between them. So yeah, it was all right. That's on Disney Plus, as is the sequel as well, which I haven't watched yet. Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit, directed by oh, no yeah. than Bill Duke, of course. Really? Yeah. Oh my God. Of course he did. That would have, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, of course. And what is he? I didn't know he was director. What else has he done? I I'm not sure what else he's done, but I mean, we know we're obviously aware of his work. Uh, I mean, I don't know what he's done, but I know what he's capable of. Yeah, I'd be interesting to see what else he's done, to be honest. But I, I mean, yeah, a kind of jovial, like family comedy, from. The man who <laughs> who uh, isn't best known for Predator and Commando, yeah. He the last time I saw him was he rocked up in Mandy, uh, and he looked tired. And uh, he pretty old by now, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, I thought he looked pretty sick. weary in Battlestar Galactica, to be honest. <laughs> so it, as well. <laughs> it is still it. Um, it is time for film of the week. Okay. Uh, my my film of the week is Halloween because it's not often get to say this, but I know that this is a film I'm going to return to multiple times over the next forty or fifty years. Um, yes. That that I trample this earth. So yeah, I it's well I, other ones have been good, like It Man 4 was good and I've enjoyed some films. Uh, that feels timeless. That feels like one that I'm gonna be like, yeah, I'm watching that again. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. I think it's one that I I fancy watching it right now in fact. But you know, um because it's so watchable and so rewatchable. Uh so I'm gonna go with This is England, I think, because it's still holds up and I think it's quite relevant in these tribalized times that we live in uh and but also uh, um an honorable mention for the cobra kai tv series because i really enjoyed that uh i thought it was very amiable so yeah um films of the week um but just before we end i've um I woke up this morning and in and in and and it was like half five and bed was empty and I just thought I'll face up so I nipped to the bathroom or something. And then I woke up again, like quarter past eight, and she still wasn't in bed, so I thought, Oh, she's okay. So I, I went in the living room and she was just like all wrapped up in <laughs> like in a in a blanket on the bed with a cat, just watching a horror film. <laughs> like she said i popped on the turning um i haven't seen it so i can't comment on it but i just said you woke up at dawn and thought oh, i'll just chuck on a film like a, a really like average horror film are you sure I mean, i'm not your girlfriend <laughs> yeah because this is i said you're doing a rupert and she said what falling in love with you and i said no no no, no the other thing film watching <laughs> the other thing that we do <laughs> 
<laughs> constantly in a state of falling in love. Like it's never fully realized, but it's always always look at each other with like twitching eyes, like the monks. Uh, yeah. Like at the start of Tropic Thunder, just just realizing the swell of emotion that's never never fully comes to pass. It's always it's always present. <laughs> um, good, right, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic news. Yeah, so um, I've yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm my blunderbuss approach to film watching at the moment because I've been doing a lot of gaming as well. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to be watching. Um, have you got anything that you know is on the cards for the next one? Uh, not really. I'm really determined to watch some more horror movies because I, I, I feel like, like, I mean, really, it's just Dark Skies was the only horror movie I've watched this time, I think. And that was crap. And well. it was very, very bad indeed. So, <laughs> despite J.K. Simmons. So, yeah, um, I don't know. I, I want to watch some more horror yeah, maybe maybe a bit of Halloween action. Maybe I, I need to get up to speed with the series because I've only watched I've only watched the original and the second one and this the 2018 version. So, yeah, which yeah, Resur- less resurrection and H2O. Yeah, okay, yeah. Actually, I watched H2O. That wasn't very good. Um, but we just to remind people, Halloween 2018 is a sequel. It's not a remake. So, no worries there. Yeah. Um, right then okay i'll fall in love gradually with you and leave you (laughs) okay bye dad